One of the deep problems, I think, with this presidency is the, the places where I think the president has the worst instincts are the places where a president has the most power. It is very easy for a president to undermine our alliances just by shooting his mouth off. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. In today's show, conservatism, the Republican Party, and President Trump. Ramesh Panuru, who you heard at the top of the show, is a senior editor for the conservative magazine National Review. He says the old Republican establishment has collapsed, and it hasn't yet been replaced. He thinks President Trump is not a bona fide conservative. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Despite controlling both the White House and Congress, the Republican Party has had a bumpy ride in the first few months of the Trump administration. Trump is not a traditional party standard bearer, so can the party and the White House get aligned on priorities? What impact will the divide over ideology have on the Republican Party? Ramesh Panuru of National Review joins Bill Kristol, founder and editor-at-large of The Weekly Standard, and The Atlantic's McKay Coppins to address these questions. Allison Camarota of CNN's New Day moderates the conversation. It was held on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Here's Camarota. Bill Kristol, let's start with what is it like to be a conservative today? Great, never better. Uh, just one victory after another, you know. Are you tired of winning? Yeah, exactly, right. Party gets hijacked by a guy whose most of his contributions were to Democrats and whose greatest moment was being at Hillary and Bill, uh, having Hillary and Bill Clinton at his wedding in 2007. And that's, and then half the, half, would you say, two thirds of the conservative movement decides he's great, no problem at all, and starts defending things that they couldn't conceivably have defended a year or two ago. So that's a little depressing. I mean, the irony is, I will say this, in the summer of 2015, actually I was here in the summer of 2015, and I think I said this then, so, um, but I, and it now looks ridiculous, but I think it was sort of right at the time when I said it. At that time, it seemed very reasonable to be quite optimistic as a Republican and as a conservative. The class of 2014, who, the senators and congressmen who were elected were impressive, they were young, they were diverse, they really outshone, in my opinion, the Democrats on the Hill. There were a lot of good Republican governors, some quite conservative, some more moderate conservative, as you'd expect from different states. But really, I'd been in Washington 30 years at that point. I remember saying that, you know, I look around and I see Ben Sass and Tom Cotton and Joni Ernst and Cory Gardner uh, and Dan Sullivan and Elise Stefanik and, you know, Mike Gallagher, whom I knew was, then became congressman from Wisconsin at age 33. And you see governors from Nikki Haley to John Kasich to Charlie Baker, and, and you think, you know, this is a party that's it's got problems. Every party has problems. Every movement has problems. But it's something, it looks to me like it was rejuvenating itself after the defeats uh, in the presidential elections of 08 and 12. There was fresh thinking going on. There were reformer cons, reform conservatives. Ramesh was very involved in that. Uh, then Trump happened. <laughs> Ramesh, how do you explain it? Well, I think the ease with which Trump toppled the old Republican order showed a, a, a fundamental hollowness of that, that old order. The, but one of the reasons this is such a disorienting period as a conservative, and I think probably just disorienting for, for politically aware Americans in general, is that um, you've had the, the collapse of an old Republican establishment that has not yet been replaced by anything new. There really isn't anything that you can really describe as Trumpism. It's just sort of a, a collection of his momentary impulses. Uh, and, uh, and yet, you've destroyed the old order, you haven't replaced it with anything new, and yet, they're in power. Uh, and they're, you know, they've got this really remarkable degree of power across all three branches. Um, and so I think everybody is just sort of feeling their way along and trying to, to figure out what to do. Look, I mean, if you're a conservative, even if you're one who has deep misgivings about the president's character, um, which is my funda the fundamental reason I personally couldn't vote for him, uh, 
you do look at some of the policies that he's promoting, it's like, okay, well, yeah, I do want tax cuts. I don't particularly like this health care bill, but I would like to see something better and different than Obamacare. I, would I do like some of this deregulation. I think a lot of congressional Republicans look at this and they say, well, I can't, I can't just oppose this guy all the time because a lot of the time he's just adopted stuff I've been saying for 20 years. But then he does all this other stuff that, uh, that makes you want to tear your hair out. But and like what? I mean, in other words, yeah. if you're saying the conservatives, okay, yes, maybe Donald Trump wasn't their first choice. He is not obviously a bona fide conservative. But if he's doing the conservative agenda, then yeah. what's the problem? Well, some of the conservative agenda, I don't think that most conservatives want to undermine NATO, for example. And that's something that this president has been remarkably effective at, uh, at from the very beginning. One of the deep problems, I think, with this presidency is the, the places where I think the president has the worst instincts are the places where a president has the most power. It is very easy for a president to undermine our alliances just by shooting his mouth off, and that is obviously uh, an area where Trump has a comparative advantage. <laughs> I'll let that hang there. Um, so we all know that President Trump prefers using Twitter as his favorite mode of communication. Um, as someone who was referred to by him on Twitter as a disaster, I'm wondering what you have to do to be called true garbage. <laughs> um, well, in my case, my very narrow uh, set of experiences with Donald Trump uh, date back to early 2014. I uh, was working for BuzzFeed at the time and had arranged to interview him on a flight on his plane, on a flight from New Hampshire down to New York City. Uh, <laughs> because of a series of crazy flukes, including a blizzard in Manhattan that made it impossible for us to land, I ended up uh, on the rerouted flight to Palm Beach and spent two days at Mar-a-Lago with him. Um, Marooned at Mar-a-Lago. Yes, exactly. Wandering through uh, the Trump Xanadu for two, two strange days. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I can talk for hours about my, my observations and experiences with him there. My biggest takeaway at the time, this was early 2014, he was just starting to make noise about running for president. He had been making noise about running for president for basically 25 years. Um, and and uh, one of the things I wanted to ask him was, why do you keep, you know, keep up this charade? Why do you keep talking about running for office? And it, you've never followed through. And the thing that struck me was his just deep... Uh, kind of desperation and almost tragic desperation in my my view for affirmation uh, from people he perceived to be in an elite class whether that was a media part of the media elite part of the political elite uh, corporate chieftains whatever he was a guy who had been, grown up in Queens always wanted to be part of the Manhattan insiders he was you know fundamentally uh, just desperate for that kind of respect and admiration, and, and and he wanted you know he wanted me to take him very seriously as a political figure. Uh, suffice it to say, I did not at the time. And uh, the piece that I ended up writing, the profile I wrote, uh, with the headline was "36 Hours on the Fake Campaign Trail with Donald Trump." Uh, <laughs> and uh, of my many regrets, I, I thought that piece mostly holds up in terms of a kind of character study of Donald Trump, but I did very confidently predict, uh, too confidently as it turned out, that he would never run for office. Um, and so he, that got under his skin, apparently. He spent weeks attacking me on Twitter. When he did end up running for office, uh, running for president, I was blacklisted from his campaign. He attacked me during one of the Republican primary debates. His campaign put out statements calling me a, a loser. Uh, so, so it, I, it, you know, I have a, a very fun personal history with our current president. Uh, but th that is, if you're looking to be called a scumbag, uh, try getting marooned at, at Mar-a-Lago with him for, for two days. Wow. All right. Thank you for sharing that personal history. But Bill, back to your point. So you, you saw all these good signs. You thought that the tide was turning. You had reason to believe that there was a feeling in the country that conservatism was taking root. And then how do you explain, was this the triumph of celebrity over conservatism, or what? I mean, it was a lot of things, obviously. And I do think, in some respects, 
Trump's victory has been overdetermined, or oh, if that's the term I think they use in social science. I mean, people, when something big happens, everyone wants to say it had to have happened, and it reflects extremely deep forces and problems and, and causes. And there's some truth to that, and whether it's wage stagnation uh, in the Midwest among, working, among the working class, or whether it's uh, the rise of a celebrity culture, I think that was a big part. I say personally, that was what I most underestimated with Trump. I never thought he would win the Republican primary, and just to cause trouble, I didn't get him annoyed. I kept saying he wouldn't win, and then of course I was wrong. So that he made, ridiculed me and stuff. Um, but I really, and I, but I, I thought the issue thing, we've seen that before. We've seen people play the anti-trade card, the anti, the America first card. Uh, we've seen versions of Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot, though he was third party, and Ron Paul, and even businessmen with no political experience or little political experience, the Steve Forbes's and the Herman Cain's, and they usually run, and sometimes they do well for a while, and sometimes they change the party a little bit, but they don't become the nominee. What I totally underestimated was, four, was it 10 years, 12 years of being having one of the top 10, 15 television shows in the country, and with all due respect to CNN and all these cable networks that we're on, these, you know, the real networks and real night shows, you're talking many, many million more viewers than uh, on, on all the news shows. And he had the huge advantage, he played himself, and he played a successful and dynamic and strong and successful version of himself, right? So, I mean, it's a very, it's not like just some actor who becomes George Clooney or something might be a good candidate because everyone knows who he is and he's famous and is well-liked and everyone likes seeing him in movies, but he's still playing other people. I mean, I went to some, I'm sure you guys have this experience, and Allison, you too, I mean, I went to some of these, some rallies and stuff, and I said, why are you for Trump? Well, businessman, he knows what he's doing, he's tough. I said, well, does he really know what he's doing? I mean, if you could talk to people in New York, they're not, his business career is not so great. And, no, no, he's, he's tough, and I've seen him make decisions, and it's like, really? And yes, I've seen him on TV. I mean, you really, I mean, I do honestly think the reality TV show was an extremely important part of his success. Having said that, as Ramesh said, there's something hollow, it turned out, maybe in the party, and in the conservative movement, those are somewhat different things that Trump was able to take advantage of. I, I, he was also lucky. I mean, he had 25 years. People aren't happy with the way things are going. It's a wrong track election for Republicans in particular. They're not only happy about the last quarter, you know, post-Cold Warrior has had, it's been a mixed bag, but they really don't like President Obama, and they want to change. And so who does Trump get to run against? Trump is the most outsider candidate, the most change candidate. And who does he get to run against? He gets to run against Jeb Bush, the son and brother of a former president. Never in American history have we elected someone who was both a son and a brother. And then he gets in the general election to run against Hillary Clinton. I think that helped him hugely. And I think the prospect of it, even before the general, helped him a lot. The notion it, it, that Not only did it help him, he still wants to imagine he is running against No, her. that's really true, and that shows how, but that's shrewd of him in a way. I mean, he sees that that's what it was all about. It was like, oh my God, we've been run by the Bushes, governed by the Bushes and Clintons for 25 years. We've accumulated a lot of grievances in these years. Put aside whether people are much too unhappy about the last 25 years, whether they take all the good things for granted, whether they're very silly in some ways and thinking it's all been a disaster since 1990 or 1970 or 1950, I think that all that's true personally. Nonetheless, there's a lot of sense of that out there. And he got the huge advantage of being the change candidate against a Bush and then against Hillary Clinton. And so maybe that was what accounts for success. Maybe it's a one-off. Maybe it wasn't inevitable. Maybe it doesn't mean that conservatism is over or the Republican Party will never come back or the country as we know it will never be the same. Maybe we'll make it through these four years and McMaster and Mattis will keep the foreign policy from going too far off the rails and Congress will be its usual ineffectual but not disastrous self and you know we'll just kind of muddle along that's kind of what we've done for the first five six months you your say. optimism is and the overwhelming courts, <laughs> and the courts and the courts and the courts will do their thing and all that i kind of think that's possible but also uh, ramesh yeah, alluded to this well, presidency is a powerful position and we've just never had this tested this proposition of whether our institutions are strong enough to constrain a president who really is irresponsible in a way i don't think former presidents have been It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, Conservatism, the Republican Party, and President Trump, a conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival stage. The featured speakers include Bill Kristol. He founded the Weekly Standard and served as Chief of Staff to Vice President Dan Quayle. Ramesh Panuru is Senior Editor for National Review. McKay Coppins covers national politics for The Atlantic, and Allison Camarota co-anchors New Day on CNN. 
Now, back to the conversation. Here's Ramesh Panuru on the rise of Trump. I think it wasn't just that he was a celebrity, but he was a celebrity of a particular type that was distinctively appealing to Republican primary voters, and that is the successful businessman celebrity. Um, That's a type of person that Republicans have typically found very appealing. And it's, you know, it's not surprising, actually, as late as when Romney gave his big speech against Trump, a fifth of Trump supporters also had a strong positive opinion of Mitt Romney at that time. It was that same kind of appeal. But where most Republican primary voters had only the faintest idea of what Romney's business career consisted of, everybody at least thought they understood. Well, and he let Democrats define it to a certain extent for him. Yeah, that's, right. that's also true, right. Um, he ran out of cash d- during the primaries, for example. Um, and then second, I would just say, on the, to, to put a finer point on this issue of the hollowness of the previous Republican order, I think one thing that this primary showed was that there were millions and millions of Republican voters who found the old Republican agenda from, ninth, from the late 70s on of free trade, deregulation, entitlement reform, spending restraint... Some of them didn't like it. Some of them actively opposed it. A lot of them were just indifferent to it. It didn't move them. And so when the opponent said, well, look at this ideological heresy. He's not in favor of this. This isn't, our priorities aren't his. They'd say, they're not my priorities either. Mm. That, I think, was, was the real hollowness, that lack of connection between where the party establishment was and where its own voters were. A lot of those voters were more working-class nationalist voters. They were just not interested in that agenda at all. Yeah. That, that's, that was the question I was going to ask you, because I, I, I should say I'm, I come at this not from a conservative perspective. I, I have a journalistic approach to studying conservatism, but... Two of the two men to my right here are some of the most uh, respected public uh, intellectuals and explainers and articulators of conservatism, and and, and I I, I want to press you on that more. Because, you know, to what extent do you feel like the conservatism that you've spent a lot of your career championing and articulating and defending is just out of step with a huge swath of the Republican base. I mean, isn't that one of the big lessons from the, the party? You started to talk about that, but from this last election cycle, and, and can you bring those people back? Well, look, I don't think that, that the older conservatism or non-Trumpian conservatism is just dead. Uh, I mean, the congressional Republicans running on a different platform tended to run ahead of Trump uh, in the election, for example. I just think it's a divided party, uh, and it can't, And one of the obstacles now to, to finding a synthesis is that Trump is just so devoid of ideas. There's just nothing... You know, I mean, if you had a real program, you might be able to pick and choose among it. Conservatives might be able to say, yes, modulate that. But there's just... You know, to take one example. A consistent thread... For all of Trump's flip-flops, he's always been skeptical of trade. He's always been a protectionist. He's been railing against NAFTA for 20 years. But if you ask him what he wants different about NAFTA, he cannot give you a specific and coherent answer. There's just nothing there to react to in a weird way. And so, McKay, I'm interested in in your perspective as well because I must say, and not to toot my own horn, but I did think that he could win. And the reason that I thought that Donald Trump could win was because I worked for a long time at Fox News. And so I believed and still believe that it wasn't just um, the the apprentice that created him, it was Fox News. And he had a standing segment once a week on Fox and Friends where I felt that yes, America saw him as a celebrity on The Apprentice, but then they saw him as a political pundit on Fox. And he honed the birther stuff there and I think he worked in tandem with Roger Ailes on some level um, that they were sort of birds of a feather in terms of liking ratings, you know, being very driven by ratings. And I think a, in, ter- in terms of other things too, Allison. Yeah, <laughs> great point. <laughs> that you make a great point. There, they they have a few um, similarities, and so I, but I, but but. I, I also don't want to, I don't mean to denigrate the viewers and, and the voters because they ate up yeah. what was being served up. And a lot of that was um, the outrage factor. 
So they were angry about things. Yeah, there were the, one of the things the the kind of undertold stories of of Trump's political roots, or at least his since he converted himself into a Republican, which was not that long ago, but uh, it is the way that he understood better than almost any other Republican who ran for president this last time uh, that the there this alternative conservative media ecosystem is extremely powerful. Uh, and, and I'm not talking about the National Review and the Weekly Standard. In fact, those magazines, along with the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, editorial page, and a couple other of the kind of uh, elite establishment Republican uh, publications, are, are the places where a typical Republican who's gunning for the presidency or a primary victory would go to court, to court uh, support, right? Uh, they would meet with uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial board and maybe they would write op-eds for the National Review or, or, or the Weekly Standard. They would, they would uh, sit for profiles in the Weekly Standard. And, and you know, that, that was kind of the, the MO of, a, that, that's what a normal Republican did running for, for, for president. Donald Trump tapped, partly because he just couldn't get a hearing with those folks early on and was just laughed out of the room for the most part, skipped that and went straight to talk radio and to Fox News and to the Breitbarts of the world and uh, courted them meticulously. And I think that, you know, for all the, we often talk about how, you know, shoot from the hip Donald Trump style is, and I think that that's true, but he also was he had a very good instinct for what people, the, the audiences of those publications, whether it was Fox or Breitbart um, or, or Mark Levin and Rush Limbaugh or whatever, that those audiences wanted to hear from a Republican candidate. And it wasn't necessarily a very detailed platform on tax reform. It was grievance about immigration. It was uh, tough talk about terrorism. And, and, and Donald Trump... Uh, Play, played that and operated the levers of that apparatus much better than any other Republican. I think he also, president. and he also saw, and this was a real insight that, and he saw it just because it started to work and then he kept doing it, that saying things that are outrageous, um, which that I think it, that should be considered beyond the pale in a civil political discourse and a healthy political discourse in a country like ours, that when people like us said that's beyond the pale, it actually didn't only not hurt him, it sort of helped him. I think the Muslim ban was the moment he basically was the key. He was not doing that great before then. He was at 20%. Ben Carson was catching up to him. It wasn't clear he was going to be the nominee. He says Muslim ban after San Bernardino. Uh, people kind of know what he means, which is that it's politi political correctness is preventing us, allegedly. We leave aside the, the truth of this. I mean, but, you know, from being serious enough about p possible uh, domestically inspired terrorism and et cetera. But he says that in the most provocative way, everyone goes crazy. He sticks with it. And that's when, if you look at the numbers, it really took off. And I think that became all of us who've been complaining about political correctness, in my view, correctly complaining about it for years and decades. He takes that phrase and takes it over. So he was clever. I agree with that. He's, he's, he's shoots at the, shoots, shoots, obviously shoots at the hip, but he's shoots from the hip, but he's not unintelligent in that way. And a friend of mine who'd been in politics a long, long time watched to give him several sub speeches early on and said he's, he is clever, he adjusts the speech, he sees what works, and this is just his TV, you know, he's a, he's a showman. You know, Barnum and Bailey, you know, the music man, this is true, right? Con men do this too, honestly. They see what works, and they go with what works. He, he had never cared about immigration. He his famously, his, his properties hire a ton of immigrants on various visas that allow you to, and probably some illegal immigrants as well, the one thing he really cared about was trade, but immigration he had no view on. He marries immigrants. I mean, you know, he's not, he lives, I'm serious, he lives in New York City. It's like ludicrous, the idea that he's deeply, you know, has a kind of Midwestern resentment against large numbers of immigrants. He saw that that worked in the climate of 2015 with both concerns about low-wage low immigration from Mexico and then, of course, the, uh, the question about about Muslims in America, uh, and, and he just exploited that uh, mercilessly. Uh, but let's just bring the aperture back a little bit. I just want to make one point. I mean, Trump, did, at the end of the day, for all that he was smart and all this, he got, you know, 28% in Iowa or something like that, 35 maybe in New Hampshire, 39 in South Carolina. He's running in the 30s, basically. He's in a field of 15 candidates. He won. I don't mean to in any way minimize the achievement, but he ends up with 45% of the total vote in the Republican primaries, but really 38% when it's really contested. Bernie Sanders ends up with 45% of the vote in the Democratic primaries. Uh, almost identical percentages, almost identical numbers, but 
the primaries in total had about the same number of voters. If you asked a political scientist, and I once was one, I mean, what is going on in America? I mean, you have two candidates, and I'm not making a, a moral kind of judgment about them, but just analytically, two candidates who are outside the mainstreams of what anyone would have said were the mainstreams of either party. I mean, Sanders literally wasn't a Democrat until a year before the election because he was so proud of being a socialist, he thought it was kind of corrupting for him to be a Democrat, the party that gets all the support from Wall Street and has all these wealthy people involved in all this. Wall Street is an is organized fraud, that's what he said. Think mm. about that, that is really a pretty extreme statement. Not their excesses, not that they shouldn't do X, Y, or Z. The whole system is organized fraud. 45% of the vote, people, of the Democratic voters voted for him, 45% vote for Trump. If you asked a political scientist or historian, well, how could this be happening? He'd say, well, look, probably Great Depression, huge, uh, huge antipathy to the capitalist system. Maybe there's something like the Vietnam War or even a worse thing going on. You get that level of chaos in your country, you're going to have 45% on either side going against the establishment of both parties. But 2016, was it that bad? I mean, I'm serious. I mean, it, it's a little crazy. That, for me, is disturbing. I mean, it makes you wonder sort of what's going on in the country. I mean, that 45% of the primary voters in 2016 mm -hmm. voted for candidates who were so much, so hostile to the mainstream of public policy for the last, what, 20 years, 40 years? And was that policy so bad? Is America in 2016 such a horrible place? But is does it, that tell I you... I mean, has the world been, been so badly served by American leadership? I mean, it really, that I find... I don't know, somewhat mystifying and somewhat worrisome. But does it tell you, and I hear this all the time from people, that the standard two parties don't fit them anymore. They want a third option. They want a fourth option. They want to be able to cobble together a platform. So, you know, you hear people all the time, I want something socially moderate or liberal, and I want something fiscally conservative. Where's that option? Where's the, and there's a whole other list of permutations that people want a la carte that the two parties don't work for them. And so, Ramesh, how do, I mean, is there anybody carrying for you the conservative banner that's doing it right, that's getting any traction? House Freedom Caucus, anything? <laughs> I, I think that's, that's, the, that's a very, uh, uh, portentous uh, fade out after House Freedom Caucus there. Um, I, look, I think, uh, I think partly what's going on on the part of other conservative politicians is a, is a kind of waiting game where they're going to, you know, right now uh, the national conservative base is pretty wedded to Trump. Um, you know, he's a new president. Most of them voted for him. Um, they don't, they still, they vastly prefer him to his opponents. Um, that may not stay true forever. You know, if, if he doesn't get enough accomplished, if he does things that annoy enough conservatives and maybe different groups of conservatives for different reasons, there may become the space for conservatives to define themselves a little bit more oppositionally to him. Right now, they're not doing it. They're all laying low. But isn't that a problem? I mean, we were talking backstage that, you know... If, that, that politicians are acting like politicians, Well, yes. that they're acting like yes. politicians when Donald Trump is the one that they have to you know, flatter and cater to and, and, uh, and put up with all of his excesses. Because, yes, of course, there's always rank partisanship in Washington. And, you know, the, 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 uh, whatever ridiculous thing any president does, you'll see a huge amount of the, that his party's you know, caucus will, will support him. But Donald Trump is doing things that other presidents don't do, and he's saying things that other presidents haven't said. And, and I just wonder, I was you know, asking Bill this backstage, but if you're a 25-year-old um, watching this party, maybe you don't know a Republican party, you haven't paid close attention to a Republican party pre-Trump, or maybe you're 20, whatever the age is, and, and it's you're not just seeing Donald Trump be Donald Trump, you're seeing Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and all the bright young stars in the Republican Senate uh, all, you know, apologizing for and justifying and defending things that most of them probably see as fairly indefensible. Isn't there a corrupting influence here that that is going to have a longer uh, legacy than than just you know whenever the House Republicans decide they can break from Trump? Well, I think that you are sort of raising two issues here, which is um, uh, their political future on the one hand and their spiritual integrity on the other. <laughs> uh, and the, uh, on the political judgment, I think that there absolutely is a risk that uh, Trump 
ends up being completely discredited, uh, and everybody who is seen as having been with him is discredited too. But any politician who's thinking that, on his other shoulder, so he's hearing the voice saying, well, yeah, sure, everybody's saying he's going to fail, he's going to flame out. They kept saying that in 2015. Right. They kept saying that in 2016. Hasn't happened yet. And as for the spiritual integrity question, I think, look, I admired greatly the people who have stood up against Trump uh, on the conservative side against enormous, All four of them. Against enormous <laughs> pressures. <laughs> I would just say, look, I don't think like politicians end up generally being at the 99th percentile of people if you rank them by integrity. <laughs> I mean... But I fair, think McKay, I mean, I th he raises the question which I've written about and which I think all of us most worry about. I mean, we worry about what happens to the country for the next four years and so forth. But as conservatives, I mean, and Republicans, to the degree we are, you know, what happens to the principles we've cared about. Now, maybe there'll have to be a new party. Maybe the movement was kind of getting tired anyway and it has to be redefined. I'm not too worried about being in a, you know, out of touch with the times a little bit. Bill Buckley was out of touch with the times. The neoconservatives in the 70s were out of touch. They, all, they were all in opposition and sometimes in pretty lonely opposition. Nixon betrayed conservatives. John Ashbrook, I think National Review, half supported him in his token uh, campaign against, he was a young congressman from Ohio, very impressive guy, uh, ran a campaign against Nixon in 72 in the Republican primaries. He got 10% of the vote or something, but they were sort of making the point that conservatives were not wedded to Nixon and Reagan existed. That would be the analogy, I think. I think actually, I will, this sounds self-serving, but I think conservative journalists, intellectuals, whatever thinkers have been pretty, you know, mostly pretty good. We've had our own arguments about it, but I mean, we three haven't, but with our, some of our colleagues, but I think there's been a fair amount of resistance. There's been much less among politicians. It's always that way among politicians to some degree, but I, I would like to see a little more because I think it's actually important for the future of the party. I think we're seeing some of it, Ben Sass, I mean, Mike Gallagher, others are not supporting him as much, but the question is, when do they move from being quiet or keeping their head down to saying, do they find, and what they need is a, a, an issue or an excuse. I mean, they need, they need a moment. And that came early with the immigration stuff, the executive orders, and, and the people who did object to that, Gallagher did, for example, uh, and then a couple of other things. But he, he hasn't done that much, I guess you could say, in the last month or two that's... Is that true? I don't know. Yeah, you, defi you define normalcy down. So well, that's what happens. Well, this was Jonathan Lass, my colleague. We were talking about this. Wrote a fantastic piece uh, almost two years ago now, a year and a half ago. Trumpism corrupts. And his point was people start off defending Trump in a very hard-headed, limited way. Look, he's a jerk. He's offensive. We, he'll, he's going to betray us on a bunch of issues. But at the end of the day, we'll prefer a Trump administration to a Clinton administration. We've got to support him. Then two weeks later, the left's attacking Trump. And you, you know, I don't like those. And then you start attacking the attackers. And then you become, you don't quite defend Trump, but you become anti-anti-Trump. Mm -hmm. Then you know, two months later, you decide, you know, he's getting kind of a bum rap generally. And he really is onto something there. And maybe we need to defend him a little more. And there has been a slippery slope among some people who started off, I would say, as very reluctant Trump voters, then became sort of Trump supporters and now are kind of Trump apologists. Well, I and see that all the time. to the degree that happens, I think that's very dangerous for, for conservatives. I see it all the time, and I think that it's human nature. People dig in, you know? They just dig in, and they don't... Who wants to always be insulted, you know? Well, also, who intellectually, it's just be... very hard. I mean, we know this. Think of this in your own lives, too. I mean, it's very hard to take the position of, I know this person or this thing is really pretty bad, but... It's better than the alternative, so I'm going to stick with it. And, I'm, and at some point, you either need to you either break with it, or you need to sort of tell yourself, you know what, it isn't that bad. I mean, that's well, sort of how and, that's, and, I think that's, I'm is, sure psychologists have studied this, this but how, I, I think this happens a lot in life, and I think that's what's happened to some how, of our colleagues. This is how it's been so useful to him to delegitimize criticism. Like, let's, you've got 80% of Republicans supporting Trump. And there's all kinds of demoralizing news information out there. You know, the fact that people inside the White House, apparently they can only speak about this president off the record in the tones that you reserve for small, willful children. <laughs> and if all of that's fake news, you don't need to hear anything. You can just dismiss everything that is unpleasant that you don't want to have to think about. And you can still say, well, he's a good guy. And all that stuff that you're saying that he's doing, that can't be true. I agree with that, but I will, let me make this point. There have been, the anti-anti-Trump the, the crowd has gotten some help from the left, right? There have been excesses on, in the liberal and left-wing opposition to Trump. Uh, there are, if you're on Twitter. Such as? Well, I, I, you know, get on Twitter. You will see very prominent 
uh, well-respected figures on the left, academics, historians, uh, constitutional scholars, I'm not naming any <laughs> by name, but you will see them tweeting just outright conspiracy theories about Trump and Russia collusion, tweeting links to uh, you know websites that are clearly discredited by every you know journalist across the ideological spectrum. I, you know when when conservatives see that, uh, the, there is a, it's a very easy to ignore the excesses of your side, to ignore the bad behavior of the president of your president, your party's president, and instead just attack that side. I, right? I would make yeah. a make the point slightly differently. That, there's some of that, and I think that obviously Trump supporters use that pretty effectively. The conservatives are so used to disliking the mainstream media, so used to disliking academics, not trusting some liberal law professors. People who said Dino Scalia was a threat to this nation's liberty, was a despicable human being, shouldn't be allowed to visit law schools. You know, one tends to discount those law, liberal law professors when they then turn up two years late, celebrate his death, and then they turn up a year or two later, and then they say, oh, Donald Trump's a threat to our nation's liberties. Well, the left has done a lot to discredit itself. And incidentally, I spoke at Harvard in January, and I had a good time for like two minutes <laughs> telling them, you know, thank you for introducing identity politics, for legitimating that so much, for making the very subtle points about how truth is kind of ultimately relative and perspectival. And of course, it's very simple-minded to think if you're at Harvard Law School, Yale Law School, talking about the rule of law, that is so old-fashioned and simple-minded. And now we understand, thanks to critical legal studies, that everything's so much more complicated and law is politics and law is power. Thank you for teaching us all these things, Did they appreciate liberal that? academics, because they all help Trump. You know, every minority group decided they have identity. They're, they're entitled to have their identity politics. And at some point, the white working class looked up and said, you know what? If everyone else gets to have white identity politics, we'll have identity politics. And we'll vote our grievances. And if these minority groups can vote for kind of unqualified candidates who say irresponsible things because they're their representatives. Yeah. We'll vote for some guy who says irresponsible things because he represents us. But just one final point. The other way people went wrong a little is, this was understandable, but the, the critique of Trump was authoritarian, super dangerous, it's the 30s. I mean, that was, look, I'm not unaware of those dangers and I think it's worth keeping an eye on those things, but I think that wildly underestimated the, the strength of our institutions, the constitution, separation of powers, federalism, the private sector, civil society, universities, all these things that were going to be barriers to Trump. And in a way, that, but that, so that didn't really ring true to people. And now I think the problem four, five, six months in is people are looking around saying, well, I don't know. I mean, there are civil liberties in America exist and the universities are the universities and things are happening. And in fact, if anything, the culture is moving left probably in response to Trump. The truer criticism, which is more of a character, populist, irresponsibility, chaos criticism, I think, um, wasn't made quite as effectively. And so I think, unfortunately, a certain number of Trump apologists look around and say, well, they said Trump would be curbing everyone's, li by now they'd be deporting tens of millions of people and he'd be curbing everyone's liberties. It's not happening, so what's the problem? The problem's a little more subtle, actually. It's very dangerous, in my opinion, and deep, but subtle, and I think that sort of weirdly helped Trump that the, the problem was misdiagnosed. That's Bill Kristol. He's editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard. Also featured in today's show, McKay Coppins of The Atlantic, CNN's Allison Camerota, and Ramesh Panuru, a senior editor at National Review. If you like today's show, please check out the episode, Can We Prevent a North Korea Crisis? The conversation from last month's Aspen Ideas Festival features journalists Evan Osnos, Thomas Friedman, Fareed Zakaria, and Elizabeth Economy of the Council on Foreign Relations. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts. Now back to the show. Here's Ramesh Panuru. Look, it, just a general impression, it does seem to me that Trump's diehard supporters and bitter opponents uh, are reluctant to acknowledge that there are people in this country who don't fall into either camp, and neither side seems interested in persuading those people right now, partly because each side seems to think it is already a majority. It's already a silent majority, uh, and if you think that, you're not interested in persuading people. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder how many people are persuadable right now. You know, I think we're in a particularly intractable time. Look, but there were people who voted for George W. Bush and then Barack Obama. There were people who voted for Barack Obama and then Donald Trump. Sure. 
people can go back. Well, and Trump's approval is down at around 38, depending on how you look at it. And the Democrats' approval is low. What that tells me is there are actually quite a few people in the middle who, you know, they don't like Trump much. Some of them I voted for, most of them didn't. They don't really think the Democrats have much to offer at this point. And there's actually, I could make a contrarian case that this is actually a very good moment for a cent more or less centrist entrepreneurial politician to say, wait a second, are we seriously going to now have a choice between 70-year-old authoritarian populist you know, demagogue like Donald Trump, and with all due respect to her, a mid-70s, you know, a speak, a minority leader of the House who thinks the solution to every problem is just more and more government and that everything, we just need to increase these programs that were invented 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. There'd be a big market, I think, for a sort of fre for fresh thinking in the center. But it's hard politically in the system to, oh. to do it. Yeah, with our, yes, indeed, with our primaries. Okay, who has questions? I wanted to ask, I mean, it seems as though, based on the fact that we're even having this session, that there's some sort of longing or hoping that uh, something better can come along to better represent the conservative banner than what we're dealing with right now. And yet we're dealing with a situation now where do the gerrymandering and the dynamics of the House most House Republicans are not in danger. And due to the fact that virtually everyone up for re-election next year is a Democrat in the Senate, uh, so it seems like that kind of massive change is not going to happen on its own. Is there any real hope or any reason to think that there's any impetus for massive change on the part of the Republican Party since it seems to be in control and likely to remain in control for the next three years? Ramesh, wait, hold, do you want to well, no, that's, I mean, that's obviously a question a lot of us have thought. No, I think, they're, I think it's 50-50 or better. The gerrymandering thing is totally overstated. I mean, if you just look at those, no, I'm just saying analytically, it's a political science matter. In the last four or five congressional elections, there have been swings of 40, 50, and 60 seats. There could easily be a swing of 40 seats in 2018. There is gerrymandering on both sides. I think there will be. I will say it right now. I'll come back in two years, and you guys can laugh at me. The odds are right now that Republicans lose the House. They could easily lose 25 seats is nothing. That's just the average loss in, in, in a, in a, in a, in a mid-year election. Usually the losses are greater in the first off-year election of when a president and his party controls Congress. But do you think the gerrymandering has benefited Republicans? On net, it has a little bit. The main thing, the most important aspect of gerrymandering that has benefited Republicans was the insistence on having majority-minority districts, which is excessively consolidated, solid Democratic votes in inner cities into one district instead of putting in two or three districts. And then a lot of other things have happened. But there are states that don't have gerrymandering and also have the same partisan split. So it's not actually, I think, anyway, the Senate doesn't have gerrymandering. There we have the fluke that the, there are so many more Democratic seats up this year. But I think they could lose the House. And I guess I'm a little more optimistic that you don't need to have a crashing defeat to have an awful lot of Republicans decide we can't have this going forward. So for me, the huge issue is 2020. If you're a Republican, you could have nominated, I'm proud of the people, the Republicans, I know this is like unpopular. I am perfectly happy to be part of a party that nominated Reagan, Bush, Dole, Bush, Bush, McCain, and Romney. They are all decent human beings. They're all impressive in many ways, human beings. They're not all perfect. They, I preferred other candidates some of those times in the primaries. That's a perfectly respectable political party to be part of. And I would say the same of most of the Republican senators and a decent number of the Republican House members and a lot of the Republican governors, incidentally. So then the question is, how do you get back to there from here? I agree it's a problem. 2020 is the big issue for me. If the Republicans nominate Trump again, then it's hard for someone like me to say, well, it's kind of just a one-off fluke. It was weird. He was lucky. He had bad opponents. It was, uh, he, he played the, his cards extremely well. Then he got an inside straight in the Electoral College and won the general election. And there, I think it's very important that the public does not nominate Trump in 2020. Now, I agree that right now it doesn't look like that will happen, but these things never... But, Lyndon Johnson did not look vulnerable six months yeah. in, in 1965, and he ended up not running for but re But I, I don't know, Bill, you keep saying four years, but I mean, isn't, Ramesh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, isn't it if the unemployment rate is low and if the economy is doing well? I mean, isn't that just the simple calculus? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that... I mean, if you, so, depends on which question we're... In, answering here, if you want to think about sort of does Trump leave a long-lasting mark on his party and fundamentally transform it, I think that what you would have to do is actually a little bit more than that. It's something that happens very rarely. Reagan did it by winning re-election and by having a successor win the election after that. 
that, I think, made for a, a long-lasting transformation of the Republican Party along the line, and then of American politics, really, along the lines that Reagan wanted. Clinton didn't quite succeed in doing that in his party, um, I think because of the way 2000 went, sort of a split decision that ended up going to Bush. Uh, it didn't happen to, you know, George W. Bush, he tries to change the Republican Party. Compassion and conservatism seemed to be carrying all before it in the early 2000s. And that just totally washed away, even though he did win the se his second term. Okay. No, but I would just say, I just want to say, one, I, I think that underestimates the corrupting character of Trump. From my point of view, a Republican Party that's willing to stand by Trump and renominate Trump is a deeply problematic party. And someone like me who would still hope at this point that the Republican Party could be saved, I think would leave it. Now, I don't know if I speak for anyone more than, you know, seven people or whatever, as McKay said. <laughs> but I, and I do, but I, then, then I do think my kids and, you know, every. 23-year-old, 26-year-old intelligent young people, then they look at the Republican Party and they say, right now they look at it and they say, God, Trump, that's what, that, that's what conservative is, that's what the Republican Party is. But they also say, but you know what? I live in, I don't know, Massachusetts, and Charlie Baker, he's a Republican and he's a pretty good governor. Or I turn on the TV and I see Nikki Haley at the UN and I think that's reasonable. Or I learn about some young congresswoman, Elise Stefanik, in upstate New York, and I think, well, she's impressive. I think that gets harder if Trump gets renominated, and the possibility of saving the party, from my point of view, gets much difficult. So for me, 2020 is extremely important. I, I the just corrupting wanna... effect of Trump becomes, it's impossible to say once he gets renominated, well, that's not really the Republican Party. He's just the guy who got nominated and elected and then got renominated. Then he is the Republican Party. Whether he succeeds or not, I mean, Ramesh is right, whether he succeeds or not as a president in transforming America, he is the Republican Party if you're nominated and renominated. Uh, I'm an anthropologist, and I wanted to push you to look a little bit beyond the charismatic leader that Trump is to the symbolic weight uh, that he represents for a lot of his voters. And what I mean by that is Trump represents different. And you mentioned that in terms of anti-establishment, and both he and Bernie Sanders, one represents aspiration for something that was in the past, and one represents aspiration for what something could be in the future. And my question is, are we underestimating the emotional connection that someone has to a political leader like Trump? He represents the American dream, whether or not that information is misguided in yeah. terms of his success stories, but he represents someone who is a successful businessman, which is what a lot of the American dream is about. Yes. And so are we underestimating that? And two, do you think that there is a potential for getting Trump as an individual that someone else could come into place who represents similar values and aspirations and the okay. desire for achieving the American dream? McKay, do you have a thought on that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I will say as somebody who covered, uh, as a reporter, covered the presidential campaign, the, the people that I talked to at the Trump rallies, the kind of super supporters who would reorganize their whole day to go see him at a stadium or, or whatever. Um, are, those, are, those are people that when you, you can talk to them for 45 minutes and, and you will never find the breaking point for their support of Donald Trump, right? There's nothing that Trump could do. Uh, he could literally shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they would still support him. And, and I think that you're getting at something important because ultimately what they're supporting is not Donald Trump the man in their mind. They're supporting a whole idea and vision that he's put forward. Uh, that They're supporting his, uh, the way that he's defined himself in opposition to the entire political establishment. Uh, and they're voting for and supporting a, the, the hope or, or prospect of somehow returning to some bygone establishment era that uh, was good for their class of people. And, and that, that's why I don't know that, that whatever the 35, 40% of Americans who make up Trump's base are ever going to, to really turn on him. Just, I mean, two quick points. I will not accept the notion that Bernie Sanders represents high aspirations for the future. Bernie Sanders' doctrine is as old and as discredited, in my view, as Trump's, it's not quite as mean-spirited as Trump's, but the idea that we're having some, that socialism, which is what Bernie Sanders is, is the economic solution to the future is really uh, ludicrous in my view. And I'm a little, now maybe the young people voting for Sanders, to be fair, weren't voting really for Sanders, they were voting for what they thought Sanders represented, some kind of authenticity, and they didn't like Hillary Clinton, so I'm willing to stipulate that. No, I think your point's right, but look, it's not new. Barack Obama, Hope and Chang, we are the ones we've been wait we are we are waiting for, right? I mean, there's always that emotional connection. At its best, it can be 
elevating. At its worst, it's demagogic. I do think 2016 was one of the worst instances of that. I don't want to take Obama off the hook either, though. Obama's, that whole appeal was too much an emotional, uh, identity-based appeal, and it laid the groundwork in certain ways for legitimating that kind of appeal later on. I'm not saying Obama's like Trump, but, but anyway, no, I look, I think it's very true. This is democracies. People have known this for 2,500 years. Democracy is susceptible to demagoguery, and I think we've had a very bad bout of it uh, recently. Okay, right in the middle. Sir, yes? Thank you. I am wondering, I've, I've wanted to ask you all this for a long time. There is always the possibility with a Donald Trump who is such a loose cannon that he could resign tomorrow. Um, we could really find out something terrible. He could say something that gets him tangled up with perjury charge. I mean, God knows there's so many ways that this man could act absolutely collapse. <laughs> um, what is a strategy that, that you have and perhaps that this country needs to have to deal with the very real possibility that a man that is this unstable um, could completely implode? McKay, I want to ask you that because you have covered him and spent time with him. Do, I hear this from people. This is sometimes wishful thinking. Any day now, he's going to say something that will finally be the, the straw that breaks the cow's back. He's, you know, such a loose cannon. But what do you think about that? Well, yes. I mean, look, we, 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 those of us on this stage have probably been saying that for two years, two and a half years now. That he'll, he'll finally say the thing that ends his, his political career. Um, or something will be discovered. Or something will be discovered. And, and, and sure, I mean, look, there are political realities at play here. Most likely, the Republican, a Republican-controlled Congress is not going to vote to impeach Donald Trump. Um, it, but, you know, it's possible Democrats could take the House. Whatever. It's also possible Trump could... It, I would not rule out the possibility of Trump resigning just because... I, He's it tired. seems pretty miserable in his current job. Yeah, yeah. and tired of all the way. I mean, uh, but but let, let me just say this: that uh, that the the fear that I think you're raising is a real one that we have to grapple with. What if Donald Trump does uh, his presidency does implode? What if he does leave office, uh, whether by by choice ostensibly or by impeachment? What what does that do to the country? That that is going to that would be one of the most dramatic episodes that America goes has gone through has suffered through in decades. And I and I think I just mentioned the 35 percent of Americans who are diehard Trump supporters, whatever that number is when he leaves office, uh, the, those people are not going to be happy. They're not going to be quiet. And I don't think Donald Trump, knowing what we know about him, is, would go quietly either. Mike Pence would be president and they would adjust. I don't, it would be a good thing if that happened, not a bad thing. I'm not, and I'm not, <laughs> the institutions are strong. I'm not worried that we couldn't take a succession. We did it in 74, a succession of a vice president to the presidency. Um, so I, I guess I'm less worried about that. But I would just say, it's a, we need to be a little, I just add one point. We're all used to the psychology, you know, and he's crazy and what's going to happen. There's an actual investigation going. People are being too, people are conflating too much an actual FBI investigation, now a special counsel investigation, with he's an oddball and maybe he's, you know, says things that aren't true. And that investigation is going to produce one of two things. Mueller is either going to say, you know, he'll maybe indict other people, but he may end up saying President Trump, in his judgment, in Mueller's judgment, did not, convict, did not commit uh, indictable or impeachable crimes. There's no occasion to have a referral to the Congress of the United States. In that case, Trump's not going to be impeached. If he re refers to Congress, as Ken Starr did, I'm not so confident that a Republican House, that would all depend on the facts. Mm -hmm. People are being much too glib, in my opinion, about saying, well, he's not going to get impeached as long as the Republicans are there, or as long as even the economy is good. If the facts are the facts... Well, what are the, what are the, the signs you've seen in this Congress of them, of them you, you We know, have not seen... Turning we, on him. Well, here's I'm what, not saying that as an no, applause line, but the, no, I, but I, it. I mean, No, no, but it, people are just... I mean, I'm, old, I'm the only person who's probably old enough to have lived through Watergate. Things are very... Nixon had the support of 50% of Republicans till the day he resigned, but at the end of the day, if you actually have facts that he, Nixon erased the tapes, that Nixon did order the burglary. If you then have resignations, if you then have your general, in his case, John Dean, turning on him and testifying, it changes everything. And at that point, even you know Republican leaders in Congress say, I'm sorry, you have to go. So I believe Trump will have 50%, I agree with that. He will have support, 50% of Republicans, which is 25% of the country, let's say, he will be with him, 20% will be with him to the bitter end. But an actual, if there's a really impeachable crimes, the whole thing changes. If there's not, then we're looking at four years of Trump. Okay, so, oh, well, 
Well, no, make your point, because we, we have the few last moments, and I was okay, just going to do me, a lightning rod, I mean, a lightning round of predictions, so there, There's a, a lot, yeah, a, a lot to, to talk about, but let me, <laughs> let me just focus in on the, on the specific point about impeachment. It seems to me that the thing to think about, that the best way to think about impeachment is to think about it, sort of game it out backwards. What would have to be the case for it to happen? And the answer, I think, is you have to have a social and political consensus in this country that is extremely broad, extremely widespread. It is much broader than the consensus that it takes to actually elect a president. That is based on the design of the Constitution. That's, it's supposed to require that consensus. It follows, I think, that you are going to have to persuade people, including people who voted for him, that he has to go, that he has done something that merits his removal. And I think if you look at the numbers and you just think about the, the varied types of people who make up Trump's support, one of the things that follows from that is you're going to have to be patient. A lot of his core supporters are not people who follow political news Every, you know, they don't follow it on a tweet-by-tweet tweet basis, and a lot of people may think he's already done so many things that warrant his removal. People's minds are going to change much more slowly than that, okay, Ramesh. if they change at all. Okay, lightning round. Uh, what is going to ha What do you think will happen in 2018, 2020, and with the investigation? <laughs> so, um, in 2018, I think that uh, if I had to bet right now, I think Republicans lose the House. Um, although I think if they go overboard on if the Democrats go overboard on impeachment, that won't happen. Uh, 2020, you know, I didn't predict 2016 and 2015. Come to think of it, I didn't predict 2016 and 2016. So that is about as, as far as I'm going to go. And the investigation, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I, it, this cruise seems entirely possible of perjuring itself um, even when there is no underlying crime. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't know, of course, what the underlying fact... Look, I just think the investigation is... Uh, we're so used to having the Trump discussion and, you know, will he win the primaries? Will he win the election? Or will this tweet hurt? And we've sort of lost sight of how the investigation is just a different scale of thing. There is going to be a report by the special counsel to the House of Representatives one way or the other. Clinton maintained support and was impeached by the House. He wasn't convicted by the Senate, but he went through impeachment. And Trump is nothing like Clinton's level of support. And we don't know what, and that was for lying under oath to a grand jury. It was serious. We don't know what Mueller will find. So I'm, and we don't know what the facts are. I mean, this is the thing everyone can, we, we have no idea what actually the true facts are, either in, in terms of the campaign or certainly in terms of possible obstruction and so forth. So I think a lot depends on that. A lot in 2018 depends on that, I think. But I think all things equal, the normal rule of having a bad off-year election should hold for Republicans in the first time they have an election after a president and Congress of their own party, and I think they're likely to lose the House. Uh, and again, if you just look at it analytically as a political scientist, you'd have to slightly bet against Republicans winning in 2020 just because Democrats have won the popular vote in six of seven post-Cold War elections. Trump won with 43, 46%. His number is now around 38 or 40%. It's just hard. You're not going to pull that same inside straight in the Electoral College twice in a row. That would be pretty unbelievable. So I just think, you know, in a political science-y way, I would say uh, mildly pessimistic, pessimistic for... Republicans think Trump is likely to be an unsuccessful president. For me, the question is, is he a unsuccessful but sort of Jimmy Carter, you know, doesn't do well, but he leaves office at the end of his term uh, president, or do the wheels totally come off? And, and I think it's, that's about 50-50. Okay. McKay? Well, I see the zero minutes remaining, so I will forego my prediction. <laughs> no, no, I'll, uh, give you, I'll give you special <laughs> no, no, no. dispensation. Go uh, ahead. Okay, well, here's what a one. loser. Good, you know. <laughs> True garbage with no credibility, right? Um, here, the, the one thing I will say about the investigation is you, one of the things that I've heard talking to people in Trump's orbit um, is that the, the big concern about the investigation is not necessarily what it's going to turn up in terms of Russia collusion. Um, it's more 
what, what other skeletons may be unearthed kind of incidentally. A lot of these, this is what happens with a lot of these investigations. They start out in one direction and, and come across indictable offenses uh, along the way. And the way that Trump has, even before he entered politics, the way he's kind of managed his kind of coterie of aides and loyalists and, and lieutenants is, is very, always to kind of pit them against each other, to ha expect them to compete ferociously with each other, and, and, to, and often those, that means crossing lines, uh, ethical or legal, to try to get his attention and, and get his respect. And there, there, there's a fear in the Trump White House that this investigation could turn up all kinds of things that we don't even know about right now and that Trump doesn't even necessarily know about and that that could end up derailing his presidency. I don't know if it'll happen, but that is a possibility. I put out there. Um, gentlemen, thank you. Thank you very thank you. much for this great conversation. Really great to thank get you, all of your thoughts on this. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. McKay Coppins covered two presidential campaigns for BuzzFeed News before joining The Atlantic as a staff writer. Bill Crystal founded the Weekly Standard. He's a regular on ABC's This Week. Ramesh Panuru has been covering national politics for two decades at National Review. Allison Camarota is a co-anchor on CNN's morning show, New Day. Previously, she worked at Fox News. Their conversation happened in June 2017 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The Aspen Ideas Festival captured the conversations of our time, happening at dinner tables, street corners, and workplaces across the country. This month and next, we're bringing you more of these discussions. Instead of one episode, watch for two to drop every week. Later this week, how can the Democrats get their groove back? The show features New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.